Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Lou Figaro. And welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. This episode, we are joined by two returning guest co-pilots, both of them Patreon legends. First off is the return of the fat bearded vinyl guy and the R4 designated kiss guy, Matt Carwick. Matt, good to have you back, man. Love it. I am glad to be here. It's going to be a fun episode, man. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we have making his second appearance, Graydon Laycook. Graydon, welcome back to the R4 podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. All right. So on this episode, we are going to continue the R4 Kiss journey with the band's 1981 album, Music from the Elder. FBVG, give a quick Kiss recap of where you come in with the Elder. Well, Kiss is one of my all-time favorite bands, despite the best efforts of several Lutheran pastors and teachers. I mentioned this in a, in a previous episode, the, the last Kiss episode, but as a kid in the 80s, I was subjected to movies telling me that rock music is the devil's music. And of course, Kiss was public enemy number one, probably for the costumes, because God forbid you actually listen to the music or read the lyrics. It's just easier to assume and condemn. At any rate, the first Kiss album I got was the self-titled debut, and I was hooked. I was big into 70s Kiss in my high school days. Uh, Revenge came out in my sophomore year, so I dug that at the time. As of today, Sonic Boom is the only studio album that is missing from my record collection. I have a couple of German pressings with the alternate logo. Uh, Aaron and Lou, you saw one of my more recent one that I got. The Elder was one of the last Kiss albums that I heard because I remember seeing it in the racks at the exclusive company in Appleton, Wisconsin, rest in peace, where I spent a lot of my hard-earned money. And it was like a mile from my high school as well as where I live right now. I always wondered what the music from part was all about, so that's probably why I passed on it because I really didn't get that context, and I still don't. Graydon, this is your first time with Kiss on the podcast. So what's your history, and where do you come in with this particular record? So I come in with Kiss about 1978. I was about seven years old, eight years old. Um, I don't remember the exact moment, but I ended up with a copy of Kiss Alive 2, and I probably soon after that, the, the double platinum albums, and I was all in. I had the posters on the wall. I had the merchandise. I remember watching Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park when it debuted on the, on the TV and then meeting up with my buddies the next day in the neighborhood and, and discussing the merits of, of that movie. And <laughs> I think we even reenacted the, uh, the scene when they, they sing Beth <laughs> to, uh, what's that? What was her name? Lori or something? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And then I remember the day Dynasty came out. My mom drove me to the department store and I picked up a copy and we drove home and the thing was warped so bad that we drove back to the store and got another copy. And, and <laughs> I was into that album. I remember listening to that all the time. And then a um, bit of a blackout period. I was always a fan and I, and I picked up copies of Unmasked, The Elder, Creatures of the Night when they came out. I just don't remember much about that period. And, you know, being eight, nine, ten years old at that time, pretty much my only exposure to the band was whenever they were on TV or in a magazine that could be found at, at the grocery store. So I imagine as their popularity kind of waned a bit, I wasn't quite as in touch with them. But again, I was I was getting the records. 
And then in 83, when Lick It Up came out, I remember going to the store and buying that. And that was the first time I saw them without their makeup because I didn't have MTV at the time. And then ever since then, you know, I was buying the records when they came out. I started seeing them in concert during the Animalized tour and pretty much saw them every time they came to Baltimore or D.C. up until and, and through the, the reunion tour. Yeah, you know, I just never stopped being a fan. I put up with all the abuse at school from the from the Kiss haters and still do in a way. But, yeah. you know, it's all good. <laughs> and as far as The Elder, like I said, I, I think pretty much got it when it came out. I don't remember much about it at that time. And then um, when the label released the, all the back catalog the first time on CD, I remember I picked up a copy then. And then 2014, when the label released all the albums on vinyl, I picked up another copy then because that had, again, the original as intended uh, track sequence. And yeah, that's that's where we are with that. All right. Lou. I went over it before, like on the other podcast that I found Kiss when I was about seven or eight rock and roll all night. The kids down the street had the Alive album, and we used to jump all over the poor parents' furniture acting like we were rock stars putting on a show. <laughs> and I was a card-carrying KISS Army member all the way through Dynasty. Uh, but by the time Unmasked came out, I had all but written them off. They were they, they went kind of all Saturday morning cartoon on me. I was already completely checked out by the time this was released. And I saw them on an SNL type late night show. It was called Fridays, um, with Michael Richards and a bunch of other people. And it drove home everything that I had concluded about these guys by now. Where, where's the platform boots, jeans, singing a ballad. Uh, Paul Stanley was dressed like Jane Fonda after the bomb dropped. (laughs) Ace looked like he had to go to court. He cut his hair so short. And who is this new guy with the bushy hair and the chin strap up his nose? I mean, who is he? Was he the the royal guardsman? I mean, you know, is that is his hair supposed to be that big bushy hat? I mean, you know, where's his rifle? You, you never know. The last guy thought he was a cat. Uh, I I never bought the album or or listened to the whole record until way later, in about '97, when they released the the remastered CDs, they started releasing them by threes. And, uh, I bought them as they were coming. I, they came out and I finally heard this album and, uh, we'll leave it at that. (laughs) All right. So to quickly recap, I discovered this band in 1976 through my uncle and the destroyer album. And to make a long story short, kiss became my favorite band in the original group from 1973 to 1979 is still my favorite band of all time. But by 1981, I was done with KISS. I did not like the previous album, Unmasked. And then I heard that Peter Chris was out of the band and they got a new drummer, the Fox. What the fuck? And then so in 1980, I entered my pop purgatory phase. I've mentioned that a bunch of times on this podcast where I just listened to whatever was on Top 40 Radio at the time, like most of the other kids that I knew. I basically abandoned my hard rock proto-metal roots, and I didn't realize it back then. So when The Elder came out in 81, I just ignored it. I do remember that the band appeared on an episode of the Solid Gold TV show. I never saw them on Fridays, Lou. But there there was a show called Solid Gold, which was a music program where they lip-synced a couple of songs and they looked weird, like you said, Lou. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't really miss those guys. I'm done. Oh, well. 
So then cut to 1983, and I came out of pop purgatory, and I was back into heavier music in a big way, and I got back into Kiss. Now, at that point, I had cassettes instead of vinyl, so since my love of Kiss had been reignited, I went and slowly collected the back catalog on cassette, except for The Elder, because I couldn't find it. None of the record stores had it, and it was out of print already, like two years later. It had the reputation of being Kiss's shittiest album, and even the band hardly ever talked about it. It was just kind of swept under the carpet. So it just became this sort of holy grail for me. I really wanted to find this record, but I didn't have any record dealer connections, and I just couldn't locate a copy. I even had family members looking for it, too. So now we got to skip ahead to 1989, and I just switched over to CDs instead of cassettes. And I'll never forget this. I was at the Musicland record store at the main mall near Portland, Maine, where I was living at the time, and I stumbled across this on CD. They'd put it out on CD. I mean, it was like Indiana Jones finding the lost Ark. I yelled in the store. I yelled at my sister. I was like, Shannon, look! And she was like, oh my God, you found it! (laughs) And I just remember that rush of finally getting my hands on this album. So I bought it, took it home, and I listened to The Elder for the first time. Now I'm going to give you some basic facts about this record, brought to you by Wikipedia. Music from the Elder is the ninth studio album by American rock band KISS, released on November 10th, 1981, on Casablanca Records. It was produced by Bob Ezrin, and was recorded from March to September 1981 at Ace in the Hole Studios, Wilton, Connecticut, A&R and Record Plant Studios, New York City, New York, Sound Interchange Studios, Toronto, Ontario, and Ezrin Farm, King City, Ontario, Canada. It reached number 75 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and has no certifications for albums sold. Not even close. And here's the band's lineup card. We have Paul Stanley on vocals, rhythm guitar, and lead guitar. Gene Simmons on vocals, bass, and rhythm guitar. Ace Fraley on vocals, lead guitar, and bass. Eric Carr on drums, percussion, acoustic guitar, and backing vocals. There are additional musicians, which we'll mention as we see fit. And also, we are going to be reviewing the resequence track order beginning in 1997, as opposed to how the album originally appeared in 1981. So we're actually going back to like how it was supposed to be, instead of how it originally appeared. You know, because the story is so important. Okay, let's begin a track-by-track analysis of this album. The first thing we hear is Fanfare, written by Paul Stanley and Bob Ezrin. Start us off. This is the most unkiss album opening ever. We got some weird wind chimes going on before some woodwinds play this motif we'll hear several times during this thing. It sounds like Fiddler on the Roof to me. And of course, that opens a Pandora's box in my mind because now I'm thinking of Kiss doing Fiddler on the Roof. We just lost Kyam Topple not, not too long ago. 
<laughs> Maybe Paul Stanley can be the next iconic Tevya. I mean, he is Jewish and he's done musical theater. Can you imagine this? A fiddler on the roof. <laughs> Sounds crazy, no? But here in our little town of Anatevka, we are all fiddlers on the roof trying to scratch out a simple tune without breaking your neck. You may ask, how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Rock and roll! Boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. This episode's exceeding expectations already. Doesn't get any better now. After the fiddler on the roof part, the instrumentation gives me the impression that this story will be something along the lines of Kiss meets the Phantom of the Renaissance Fair. <laughs> at least at least the stand-in for Ace wouldn't be that much of a stretch since he never went to the Canada studios. But I will give credit where credit is due. There are actual instruments being played here. In 1981, we were seeing a lot of synths, but we have real instruments. But that's the only positive thing I have to say about the fanfare. That and Gregorian chants are always awesome, but I would have preferred more than 13 seconds of it. I did not expect the review for fanfare to last more than two minutes apiece. <laughs> you did not disappoint BVG. Like I said, it doesn't get any better. It's all downhill from here. All right, Graydon, <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, I think Matt did a great job of summing that up. Um they come in and then that, I guess the woodwind instruments and all that. It's like, what is this? And it's almost like a disclaimer, like, hey, what's coming next is some serious high art. <laughs> so all you pot smoking age degenerates need to pay attention, take notes, because Kiss is taking it up a notch. And we're going to show you that um, very quickly as soon as the fanfare ends. And yeah, it was interesting how the woodwinds kind of transfer to the big symphony what do you call it we're just kind of climaxes and then you get these very low barely audible like you said with a gregorian chants or some male choir singing there and i uh, i don't know what to think of that when you hear it. i i wish i could remember the first time i heard it in the actual order it was supposed to be in you know you get home back in 1981 and you hear that and how many people would have walked up and double check the label on the record to make sure that the right record had been in the right sleeve and that, you know, it was an actual kiss album. Lou. What in the holy <laughs> Sid and Marty Croft is this fucking bullshit? <laughs> there are so many ways that this could have been way, way cooler, but instead they picked the Mr. Rogers neighborhood approach to the concept album intros. Good day, lady Alberin. Good day, King Friday. Meow, 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 meow. Oh, it's a good day in the neighborhood, isn't it, King Friday? Yes. Come. Come here, boy. Let me comfort you. Yes. God. I hope it gets better than this. <laughs> the Gregorian chants, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Do that with the album cover. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> it is a very odd way to open a Kiss album, but this is no ordinary Kiss album. It's a concept album that tells a story, sort of. And if you're making a concept album, who else are you gonna get to produce it but Bob Ezrin? who produced the band's classic Destroyer album, as well as concept albums from Alice Cooper, Lou Reed, and Pink Floyd, The Wall, anyone? This is just a minute and 22-second orchestral instrumental piece that sounds like Renaissance music. You know, it makes me want to look for a woodland fairy in the woods or some shit. And it's the overture to our rock opera. It would be easy to take the low-hanging fruit and make this my stinky stinker, but nope, there's a track I like less than this one, so stay tuned. The next track is Just a Boy, written by Paul Stanley and Bob Ezrin. Graydon, what do you think? I'm just gonna say it, man. I, I I like this song. I don't love it, but I like it. It's it's got a nice um, feel to it, and we get to hear Eric Carr for the first time, who I think throughout the album he shines more than anyone else on it. But um, yeah, it, it's not that bad. Yeah, we get start getting the the Paul falsetto singing, which you know it is what it is. I think he busted that out first. What and I was made for loving you. And of course, that being a hit, we knew he was going to bust it out again at some point. But yeah, again, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with this song. Yeah, that's that's it. Lou, again, so many possibilities, even with these lyrics, to deliver a heavy, kiss-worthy performance for the true opener of this record. Unfortunately, it misses the mark by a mile. It's got some moments, most fall short. There's no dancer, romancer, or Capricorn. This is just cancer. (laughs) The solo is interesting, but it's neutered, where it should be ballsy. It reminds me of the whole God gave rock and roll to you thing. I wish I were Queen, Machiavellian, Paul Stanley with a coked out of his mind, Bob Ezrin at the helm, encouraging him, egging him on. I'm not really liking where this is headed. (laughs) Matt. Well, we got more Renaissance Fair soundtrack starting this one off. When the band comes in at 45 seconds, we got this nice, big, epic chorale sound. But give me more voices. Give me a full choir. That would have made it more epic. The Fiddler motif comes back with, I am just a boy. <laughs> like Green said, we start to get a sense of Eric Carr on this track because he's got some simple drum fills. Just boom, 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 boom. But I can start to feel that this is a different drummer and he will give a different feel to the rhythm section than Peter Chris. The medieval feel is still present with the acoustic guitars and jingling wind chimes noises. And this begins like a folky tale before the electric guitars kick in and it rocks a little bit more, though it still stays at a slow tempo. 
Paul Stanley plays a short melodic solo, and he sings this delicately, even going into a falsetto in the chorus that sounds a little goofy and might have been a bad choice to make, but who am I to question the superior judgment of Mr. Ezrin and Stanley? So, the concept of this record is not very fleshed out, and many people have tried to figure out what the story is supposed to be about. I don't know, I'll do the best I can with it. This track introduces us to our protagonist, The Boy, who seems to understand that he's destined for something greater than the simple life he knows so far, but he's full of self-doubt and afraid of failing. I love this! And hello, Eric Carr, our brand new drummer's first appearance on a Kiss album, which I bet is exactly what he thought he was going to play when he joined the band. No doubt. (laughs) The following track is Odyssey, written by Tony Powers. I hear you calling me. What do you make of this? Anyone else get the mental picture of Paul Stanley standing there singing this in like an ethereal void, slowly being consumed by bubble bath, getting (laughs) higher and higher until he's completely submerged in bubbles like Bobby Brady when he put too much detergent in the washing machine. He's like, (laughs) (laughs) this is ridiculous. It sounds like Christopher Cross Yacht Rock crossed with Frank Lloyd Webber. The middle part sounds like the feeble attempt at like a broken toys kind of sad clown feel. And where a blazing Ace Freely solo should, should be is a soulless, gutless, castrated, fake orgasm where you don't even spit on your partner's back to give it realism. Give me a fucking break with this stuff. Guys. I just want what any 50-plus fat-bearded Kiss fan wants. I, I want to rock and roll all night and part of every day. Leave this thinking man's crap to the prog rock guys. They've really made a horrible mistake with this so far. Matt. First off, I am not 50, all right? <laughs> I'm talking about myself. <laughs> Getting there, The mysterious sense that came from just a boy starts off Odyssey, and I want to take back what I said earlier about the real instruments. But I can't win them all. The intro, this sounds very 1981 pop production, just that overall vibe. I do think Paul Stanley was trying to show off a bit because he was singing in this higher register on just a boy, and now he's in this lower register on Odyssey. And I am not a fan of Paul's lower register. He sounds unnerving, and it makes my spine tingle, and not in a good way. (laughs) The sound is very ethereal. It's like Bob Ezrin was trying to go for an electric light orchestra type sound, which is fine for ELO, but this is KISS. And that was something that I brought up on Unmasked, which it doesn't sound like KISS. Even the guitar solo on this song, whoever the hell played it, it's very ELO style. Graydon. Yes. So again, like I think Matt mentioned and, and Louie as well, um, I don't like 
the sound of Paul singing that lower register. And it's very jarring coming from the previous song when he was singing so high in parts with the falsetto. I feel like the song, the whole arrangement of this song is to emphasize the vocals and his singing in this register, and it's just awful. In my notes, I just put another lame guitar solo. The order of the songs that the record company we alluded to earlier, it was, it was released. The record company took the original arrangement, uh, I'm sorry, track listing, and they changed it. And it's no surprise that this song was stuck towards the very end of side two. They just buried it over there. Um, it's, it's that bad. This has Bob Ezrin's essence spunked all over this motherfucker. It's supposed to be big and dramatic with a sweeping orchestral backing over a piano-driven rock tune, courtesy of the American Symphony Orchestra arranged by Michael Kamen, rest in peace, who worked on all kinds of film scores and popular music albums. Ezrin didn't trust Eric Carr to play on this for some fucking reason, so he brought in session ringer Alan Schwartzberg to play drums. Go figure. The song was written by a dude named Tony Powers, who plays piano on this track, and had a few minor hits as a songwriter, and for some reason, Ezra and Stanley picked this song out because what? It's got an epic fantasy feel that would go along with the boy's journey? Beats the fuck out of me. I mean, it's got some out-there imagery with far-off galaxies, realms of time and space, starry seas, mountains, oceans, and deserts, a child in a sundress, what the fuck? And why on earth is Paul singing like that? We're all kind of complaining. It sounds like he's got something stuck in his throat in the verses. And the falsetto's back, and this is just a horrible mess. One of my all-time least favorite tracks this band ever did. You best believe this turd is Aaron's Stinky Stinker. (laughs) The next track is Only You, written by Gene Simmons. FBVG, what do you say? Only you can make my something whatever. Oh, that, that's the wrong one. <laughs> uh, we finally have an intro that kind of sounds like Kiss. If I knew the story of what was supposed to be going on, I might have a better idea of what this song is about. The groove at 1 minute 15 sounds like something left off of Unmasked, or maybe to the point recycled from Unmasked. There's another ELO-ism, the robotic voice in the chorus going, Tell me your secrets. Mm-hmm. And then at two minutes and 50 seconds, Kiss shows up. The gang vocals of Only You, Eric Carr is hitting that tribal drum beat, the repeating guitar pattern, that boom, boom, bam, boom, bam, boom, boom, bam, boom, bam, boom, And oh, baby, now we're going. Now I'm on board. But just like football season, it doesn't last long enough. Graydon. So I kind of like the beginning parts um, up until the section when Paul comes in and then the song, you know, you get Paul coming in and then you get that instrumental break and then you get Paul comes back in and then you get that little fanfare melody again. And then I think it's another instrumental. So 
I don't know what's going on at that point, but I do like the beginning. I actually bought the Doro solo album that Jean produced because she did a um, a version, like obviously with rewritten lyrics. Um, but again, the beginning I like, uh, but I, I'm lost once Paul comes in. Lou. I was thinking to myself, oh, thank God the demon finally gets a song. And I like the plotting 80s chug, the bass line weaving in and out of the back line is cool. But then that kind of change up is awkward with the minor key thing. But they start aping Rush and they're doing a really bad job of it. It sounds forced and unfinished. It's it's really Bush League. There's some good ideas here, but it's just it's not all coming together like it should. And the whole rock opera thing, just being shoehorned into it is just not helping. Next. This has multiple sections and rhythmic shifts with interesting heavier riffs throughout it, including rhythm guitar played by Gene Simmons. Though the pace of the track stays mid-tempo and there's like a shimmering gloss to the production so it doesn't slam into you. It just kind of eases you along. There's also tons of effects on the voices, such as the backwards echo on Simmons, so he sounds mysterious. There's even a callback to the Just a Boy theme to let you know this all ties in together and that this is a concept album. Smart thinking, Bob Ezrin. All right, let's get into the weeds a little bit here. The concept of this album is supposedly derived from a short story or outline or something that Simmons wrote that at its essence is a good versus evil thing. Like a cross between medieval fantasy and Star Wars, which you can't miss its influence on this. The Council of the Elder, I guess, is a very ancient group of higher level beings that sort of watch over the earth and belong to the Order of the Rose, a kind of light side of the force idea that's benevolent and committed to maintaining the cosmic balance of morality. And when the darkness or evil rises and knocks this balance out of whack, the Elder seeks a champion to fight on the side of good to restore that balance. I could be completely wrong about all this, but this is what I've gleaned from countless hours of internet research as well as pulling things out of my own ass to try to make sense of this. Simmons is not in demon voice. He's singing in his sensitive register as I believe he's playing the role of Morpheus, a sort of human caretaker representative of the elder, like think Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he's trying to recruit the boy to stand in as the champion for the Order of the Rose. Morpheus is telling him that he knows the secrets and he's the light and the way, while Paul Stanley as the boy is still expressing fear and self-doubt. As the track ends, a spacey, atmospheric synth sound segues into the following track. And that following track is Under the Rose, written by Eric Carr and Gene Simmons. Graydon, your thoughts? I like this song. I like the slow build-up, um, soft-spoken singing, and then the over-the-top massive chorus, and then especially the sections after the chorus where you really, I think Eric really shines with the, with the drum fills. It's not nothing special about this song. It's a song I've always, you know, I've dug this song. 
as long as I can remember. And I really, for the first time on this album, at this to this point, I really liked the, the guitar solo. Lou? Well, this one comes right out of the last one. And here's the new guy's turn up at bat. Eric Carr wrote this one. And so far, it's the first decent song I've heard. Go figure that out. The drummer wrote the good song. <laughs> the demon does a good job with the verses and the operatic church vocals and the chorus fit right in. The beefy guitars hold this up and simple but heavy drums serve the song without being all complex and prog. You could tell that Ace is nowhere in the building when it comes to the time for the solo. And I guess this is Paul getting ready to be the go-to go, uh, guitar guy this time around. Well, it's not a bad solo. I'm digging the bouncy delay going on, but I'm really wishing Ace had, but I'm really wishing Ace had his heart in it for this. Again, it, I don't think this is him. The ending keyboard pedal tone reminds me of exiting a Disney ride and being fed into the gift shop. Matt. I seriously don't know what to think of this album. I hear something that I like towards the end of Only You, and instead of building on that, they just go back to whatever in the name of Ron Keel this is. <laughs> the chorus is another big banging epic sound, but Paul is singing low again, and we've discussed that. That it, it sounds wrong, like there's an effect on it done very badly. The verses are airy in a lot of space, but come on, I'm not getting it from the lyrics of an unexplained concept to the uneasy nature of the chorus vocals. This whole album for me has been hit and miss so far. So, like Lou said, Eric Carr co-wrote this, and he played acoustic guitar on it, as well as the Marshall-style drums in the verses, which are composed of guitar arpeggios, Ace Fraley plunking the bass notes, and higher-pitched synth lines that play up the Renaissance Fair vibe of the music, while the whole song is done in waltz time. Simmons is still in gentle voice, trying to recruit the boy for the elder, playing up his positive qualities and imploring him to find his destiny. And then the chorus features booming, dramatic, almost discordant music as the St. Robert's Choir appears in their deepest voices as the counsel of the elder itself, warning the boy that if he accepts the call and takes the oath to become a Jedi uh, champion, he will be making a serious commitment and he will have to make sacrifices in his life to be worthy of the Order of the Rose. As far as I know, this is Ace Fraley. And he gets in a nice, terse, double-track solo that pans back and forth, and I am enthralled by the gravitas of this track. This time, we fade into darker, more ominous synths that segue to the next track. And that next track is Dark Light, written by Ace Fraley, Anton Figg, Lou Reed, and Gene Simmons. Watch out, or it's Lou, you love this one? Ace's first contribution, and I've been waiting for this the whole the whole record so far. And if this is an indicator of why they cut a lot of his solos, I don't fucking blame him. Come on, Jaws, give me a break. 
and then a schizophrenic riff I could do without, and a lumbering, simpleton melody that's even mediocre for Ace. Gene and Paul don't make it any easier for him by basically stopping to play when it's his time to solo and just leaving him with drums and bongos behind him while he noodles through his scales at like 64th note speed. Sounds more like he was fucking around with an electric drill and, and with a pick tape to it at Guitar Center, trying different things. Was he even listening? The lyrics and melody of this tune are just ridiculously middle school level. I'm sorry, Ace. I'm calling for you. I love you, babe, but this fucking sucks. Matt. Hey, it's an Ace Fraley solo track. Eric Carr is on drums, but as far as I could tell, the rest is Ace with my limited uh, research. Somehow, Gene Simmons gets a writing credit on this one. Probably made a suggestion somewhere, and that was good enough. Something Ace has done on several of his songs is he'll sing one line, and then the next line he'll speak. Look out, because there's something wrong. You don't know what it is. I like that. That's a good Aceism. The solo section is... <clears throat> anyway, I like the switch up of percussion, the use of the bongos and shakers, but Ace's solo seems disjointed in spots. And he's even got some repeating licks that make me go, okay, it's time to move on. Ace, I love you, man, but this is not one of your best songs. But I do wonder if he was taking a shot or two lyrically. The skies are black and they're getting darker. It's yourself that you're fooling. Who do you think you're fooling? Graydon. Okay, so being a Kiss fan back from the 70s, y'all probably can relate. We all had our favorite guys, right? Mine was Ace. He still is. And... I really, really want to like this song, but I don't. It's terrible. The only positive for me is the solo, and it's ruined by all that percussion that's going on. I, you know, I, I assume Bob Ezrin overdubbed all that after the fact. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's it's just not a good track, and uh, it's kind of a bummer that you know the last song he does for Kiss is such a such a weak song. So this track was written and demoed as Don't Run, based on a guitar riff written by Anton Figg, who drummed on Kiss's two previous albums, Dynasty and Unmasked. When Ezrin got a hold of it, he retooled it for The Elder and brought in Lou Reed, yes, the walk on the wild side guy, and the vocalist for Velvet Underground and Metallica to help rewrite the lyrics. It begins with a guitar lick aping the theme to the movie Jaws, which makes perfect sense because we're going to get into some scary shit here in a bit. The song itself is a rocker in the classic Kiss style with hard riffs, powerful drumming, including Cowbell Baby, the ace of bass returning, and an extended guitar solo section from Fraley that goes on and on and on and kicks some fucking ass. And I read was actually edited down from an even longer solo. There's also some added Latin percussion because, well, Bob Ezrin. It's the only track in which Fraley sings, and that's probably a good thing. I usually like his weird and goofy voice in general, but his heavy Bronx accent is ill-fitting for this material. A malevolent order, and you won't know what it is. Who do you think you're fooling? Lyrically, we get our first warning of the darkness that is coming, threatening to descend and swallow up everything. Ooh, I feel a chill run down my spine just thinking about what could happen next. I'm so invested in this record. Maybe that's Gene's contribution. Ace, I don't think you should do so many notes in your solo. <laughs> <laughs> 
So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on A World Without Heroes, written by Paul Stanley, Bob Ezrin, Lou Reed, and Gene Simmons. World without heroes is like a never-ending race, it's like a time without a place, a pointless thing devoid of grace, where you don't know what you're after. Matt, take it away. I first heard this one on the MTV Unplugged album. I like to give you a lame lyric alert every time I'm with you on, on the podcast. And the first line of this song, a world without heroes is like a world without sun. Oh, my God. If Gene Simmons had been writing songs for over a decade at this point, if he's so high on himself that he thinks Simmons and Stanley are on par with Lennon and McCartney, he could have come up with something better. Hell, Lou Reed has a writing credit on this song. Couldn't Lou fucking Reed have come up with something slightly more poetic? Mind you, I'm only 20 seconds into this song so far, and I'm not impressed at all. The guitar solo is clearly not Ace. I can tell just by the guitar tone. That is not Ace's tone. I do like Gene's vocal delivery, but this song is Vinyl Guy's absolute garbage. If you're playing at home, I'm counting Vinyl Guy as one word. <laughs> Graydon. Ditto what Matt said. I, I got nothing to say positive about this song. Maybe Paul Solo does kind of work with it, so we'll give him a little props for that, but song is not a good song. Lou. What happened to Demon Gene? You need my love, baby, oh, so bad. Got all mellow and sensitive. Can you imagine him keeping that shit up on this song? It sounded like Rolf from The Muppets. <laughs> world without heroes is a world without sun. <laughs> It would have been a better tune if Gene didn't sound like it was reading off a call sheet. I thought you wanted to be an actor, Mr. Klein. How about selling the sizzle a little bit? No wonder why your guitarist wants to go do his own thing. The solo is authentic, serves the song. In the video, it's Paul with Ace playing rhythm on an acoustic. What planet am I on? That's in the video. Oh, have you seen the video? The single tear down the cheek at the end. Get the fuck out of here, Dr. Love. Who the fuck do you think you are? Fucking Iron Eyes Heim. Keep America beautiful, demon. People start heavy rock careers. Bob Ezrin stops them. People start pollution. People can stop it. This originally was a Paul Stanley song called Every Little Bit of Your Heart. And apparently Lou Reed scribbled the line, a world without heroes is like a world without sun. And the boys took it from there to revamp this tune. It starts with thump, thump bass, a tinkling keyboard line and guitar harmonics. Then it gains a string section to build up the emotional core of the track. Paul Stanley plays the emotional guitar solo and fuck me sideways. He nails that some bitch. Simmons is back in sensitive voice. And I always thought of this song as Morpheus showing our reluctant boy... What would happen if he refuses to join the Order of the Rose? There would be no heroes, and the world would just be a dismal place to be, a pointless thing devoid of grace. 
Like Lou said, the video for this was the first Kiss video ever played on MTV and shows the band performing with lone spotlights on them and Gene Simmons shedding a tear at the end of it. You ever seen a demon cry? I don't know about you, but this song is beautiful, gut-wrenching, emotionally devastating. I want to cry with poor Gene when I hear it. This was the only single released from the album that reached number 55 on the UK Singles Chart and number 56 on the US Billboard Hot 100 Chart. And that unplugged performance is very good. I, it is. I, I, it, it is better than uh, than this version. Yeah. But, oh my I, God. I, I've I, forgotten it, about the video with the, the tear fucking drop. tear. Fuck oh. him. <laughs> I am, oh my God. Poor Gene. I, yeah. Poor Gene. I, He's fucking feeling it. Fuck you guys. Good thing it's I, grease paint. I'm not, I'm not knocking his vocal delivery. I think it, it's a good vocal delivery. I just think the song is shit. Fuck you guys. <laughs> so, fuck you too. <laughs> and his crispy chest hairs. <laughs> <laughs> the following track is The Oath, written by Paul Stanley, Bob Ezrin, and Tony Powers. Graydon, how about this one? Yeah, this is more like it, right? This is a full-on Paul Stanley rocker. It's a type of song that's opened almost every Kiss album prior. Um, it's a great song. No wonder that the record company switched and made this the first song on, on the first side, I believe. The only thing it's missing is a great bass solo, right? There's no guitar solo, really. I mean, it's a little... I don't even know who it is, but God, imagine if this would have had a, had a proper A solo as well. And it, if I'm not mistaken, it may even be the first Kiss track to feature um, double bass drums. Eric Carr shines on the song like he does on pretty much all the other songs he's playing. So, yeah, I'm I'm feeling a little bit better now. This is this is a really good song. Lou, oh my God, finally, here's a rocker. <laughs> and if it had lyrics about fucking, it would be something that sounds like it belongs on a Kiss record. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's still yammering on about this fucking story I could really care less about. The middle eight is dated and sounds like 70s Saturday TV. I keep expecting Witchy Poo to show up and steal the magic fucking flute or some shit. But okay, let's say he was talking about fucking and I was not already agitated beyond belief. This would be something that I'd expect on a Kiss record by this time. The heartbeat, without a doubt, you were saying it before, Matt, is different this time. There's no semblance of the band I discovered all those years ago on this record, but this is the new Kiss, I guess. Matt. I would like to welcome Kiss back to the proceedings. <laughs> I love Eric Carr's drums on this track. When he's hitting the toms in the verses as well as in the outro, I can see like strobes going off when he's doing that. That and the double bass drum hits. That do -do 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 -do. Oh, I love that. But once again, it's interrupted in the bridge with some ethereal ELO type stuff. Thankfully, it doesn't last long. It's a song I can finally get behind. 
This is the lone track from the album that most KISS fans concede is pretty good, even if they hate the rest of the record, which is a lot of, a lot of fans. It's got a heavy, galloping, badass main riff. And as a matter of fact, Paul Stanley plays all the guitars on this, and Ace Fraley plays the bass, so go figure that one. It's got thundering rhythms, including double bass drums in the chorus, and more cowbell, baby. You go, Eric Carr. Well, Stanley does sing the chorus in that stupid-ass falsetto again, and Bob Ezrin was apparently too coked up to tell the fucker not to do that. The boy's made up his mind. He's going to take the oath and join the Order of the Rose as its champion. Your glory, I swear I ride for thee. Your power, I trust it rides with me. Your servant, I am and ever shall I be. Ah, inspiring. The descending riff in the chorus is so cool that the band pilfered it and stuck it in the middle of Black Diamond during live performances in the non-makeup era of KISS. This was a single release only in Japan, and as everyone knows, KISS is big in Japan. A low droning sound serves as yet another segue to the next track. And that next track is Mr. Blackwell, written by Gene Simmons and Lou Reed. Lou, start us off. Leave it to the demon. I could see him with blood running down his face singing this, looking like a fucking lizard in all his depraved glory. Herpes outbreak rash running down his lips, <laughs> down his neck. No wonder he wanted to keep the makeup on. <laughs> this is simple, but heavy. It reminds me of his bass solo where he flies up into the rafters and does his thing. Ace gives us a strange ways ask kind of solo, harking back to the hotter than hell era. That's even him. The bridge is creepy, brings us back into the verse. It needs work. It's no what is my charisma, but I'd put it on a Gene Simmons mixtape. It's all right. Matt. If you ask me to name a song that is a quintessential Gene Simmons song, Mr. Blackwell is it for me. Starts with what sounds like his live bass solo, so you know it's a Gene song. And then he's got that staccato bass lick. Oh, I love that. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. The guitar solo is an absolute buzzsaw that matches the attitude of the rest of the song. Whoever Mr. Blackwell is, Gene is clearly telling him to fuck off. You're not well, Mr. Blackwell. Go to hell. Graydon. Yeah, I disagree with these guys. I, I think it's a terrible song. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a lazy remake in my eyes of God of Thunder. Um, and uh, it does nothing for me. I typically skip this one. If this album had performed well, you know that Gene Simmons would brag until the end of fucking time that he wrote songs with Lou Reed. But it didn't, so he doesn't. This has thick, distorted bass over a plodding drum beat. 
and it's spare with tons of open space, especially in the verses, while the choruses have a simple repeated riff pattern that starts and stops, and the whole track has a dark, foreboding vibe to it, including Fraley's deliberately ugly solo and the breakdown section that has blurred and distorted voices fading in and out of the ether. Simmons is finally in multi-track demon voice glory as we finally meet the villain of the piece, Mr. Blackwell, a sinner who just loves to sin, a fighter who just loves to win, who is most certainly not well, as he brings the boy to his domain and attempts to lure him over to his side, drinking a toast to sorrow, waste, and the inhuman race. Yeah, it's blood-curdling, terrifying, and more evil than a fashion critic. <laughs> the penultimate track is Escape from the Island, written by Ace Fraley, Eric Carr, and Bob Ezrin. this if i knew where the island was and why anyone would want to escape it i might understand the context and why it's here it does sound like something that was stolen from the chase portion of 2112 it should have been an interlude or a segue to something else hell most of side one was one big segue thing it doesn't set my hair on fire but i also don't hate it it's meh Graydon. yeah i like this song uh Brings a little energy back to the album. It's just, it's what, uh, Ace and Bob and Eric just going at the sound. I don't know how he's playing that bass. It just sounds like, to me, the way he's picking the, the chords or plucking them. I don't know. It just sounds a little little different. It's not bad. But I love the song. It, it rocks, and then they slow it down and get to kind of a, a Bo Diddley-type beat while he solos a little bit. And then... You know, Bob, being Bob, has to add those sound effects of, I don't know, what is that, some sort of medieval battle going on in the background. But all in all, it's it's a good track. Lou? Kiss jams out for lack of anything better to pad out the record. Trouble is, they're all phoning it in. And this could have been a great segue into it, like a grand finale for a mediocre concept record. And instead, it sounds like they taped a rehearsal so they could use it for ideas. Trouble is, they never took it any further, and there's nothing here that's very interesting whatsoever. This could have been their sparks, their underture. This could have been a piece that tied up the story. Instead, it just goes in the love theme for Kiss Bin. Nice try, Kiss. Next. You know, it's a weird Kiss track that has neither Paul Stanley nor Gene Simmons on it, but here we are. It's a hard-rocking instrumental played by Ace Fraley on guitars, Bob Ezrin on the percolating bass, and of course Eric Carr bashing away on his drum kit. I read that this was developed during a jam session between the three and then recorded for the album. It does have a wailing siren that sounds like a jailbreak alarm because, well, Bob Ezrin. But it does kind of make sense because I interpret this to be the boy rejecting Mr. Blackwell and making his escape from the villain's island's fortress. And I got all of that from the title of the song. 
Hey, I mean, it's under three minutes, and it makes for an exciting, thrilling lead into the finish of the album. Here we go. And that brings us to the final track, I, written by Gene Simmons and Bob Ezrin. about this last one Graydon um it's not bad you know it reminds me of course of shout it out loud we got Paul and Gene alternating verses and it moves along pretty good but you know being typical for this album they have to throw a bit of a curveball and it slows down in that section and what what is that finger snaps or is it clapping it reminds me of something they might have pulled off the grease soundtrack you know you got a bunch of kids in a at a hot sock hop dancing in the circle, taking turns going into the middle, you know, doing the hand job stuff. I don't know. I don't, at this point, it's, it's kind of a relief that, that we're done. Low. Here's their swing for the bleachers. Positive song about good self-esteem. Great message. Shoutable chorus that tries to get you on your feet at the show. And then here comes Bob fucking Ezrin. (laughs) Um, Hey guys. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, you, you know it works. Finger snaps. Yeah, baby. Alice did it on Gutter Cat and they loved it. <laughs> know what else? Polly, you know what else? You do a great Elvis impersonation. <laughs> yeah, go on. Give it a line or two. It'll sound great. Nostalgia, baby. They'll love it. Get the fuck out of here. I don't need to get wasted. It only brings me down. Cause leave me. I'm glad this is over. To close it out, we return to the land of make-believe, where King Friday and Lady Aberlin sell the boy into forced human trafficking, where he will be groomed to his champion. Goodbye, boy. Goodbye, demon. Goodbye, star child. (laughs) Good journey, spaceman. Farewell, whatever you are behind the drums, chin-strap man. Come on, guys. This is the reason no one listened to you for a whole decade. This cheesy bullshit sucks, and so do you by this point. I'm out. I can't believe in this. I got Judas Priest and Iron Maiden to go discover. Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, Yeah, I... You know what? I actually like this song. And this is an actual kiss song for me. And most of this album is not. I do like Gene and Paul trading off on the lyrics. And this is an example of it. That's done right. 
This is another fuck you song. I believe in me. And that's what I think Kiss's mantra was turning into at this point. We're still Kiss. You can go fuck yourself. I will say that the breakdown with the hand clapping or finger snapping, I don't know if we've determined what that is. I really want to hear somebody go, ready, Freddy, and then break into a crazy little thing called love. <laughs> and then for some reason, we need to bookend the album with more Kiss meets the Phantom of the Renaissance Fair and some dialogue <laughs> and some dialogue between Supreme Leader Snoke and Gandalf the Grey, where he's saying that Harry Potter is worthy to join the Fellowship because he looks like a champion and has very nice eyes. Once again, context, <laughs> man. <laughs> so we end things on another hard rocker that features Stanley and Simmons trading lead vocals and a cool walking bass line from Simmons over churning guitars and an up-tempo shuffle beat played by Alan Schwartzberg once again because everybody knows Eric Carr never could handle an up-tempo shuffle beat. What the fuck, Ezrin? Then there's the middle section, which, instead of laying a hot Ace Fraley guitar solo on us, features finger snaps of all fucking things, and kills the momentum the song had built up. But the band quickly gets back on track as we roll into the final verse, with Paul Stanley doing his best Elvis impersonation. I don't need no money, I don't need no thing, no, homo, homo, homo. And Simmons roaring, ah, in his best demon voice, Lou did it much better than I did, in the awesomely anthemic chorus. <laughs> Lyrically, the boy sums up his adventure. He was afraid. He didn't think he could do it. But then he dug deep inside himself and found out that if he believed in himself, he had a will of his own and the balls to stand alone. He can do anything and become the man for the next album and fight for the light, for the elder and the order of the rose. <laughs> ah! Wow. But we're not done because then we hear strings and medieval sounding instruments playing a variation of the fanfare theme from the opening of the record. Lou also played that for us again. As well as footsteps and a door knocker and heavy door opening sound effects. Then we hear the spoken word voices of the Elder, played by actor Anthony Parr, with heavy distorted low effects on his voice. And Morpheus, this time played by actor Robert Christie, who tells the Elder that he believes the boy is worthy of the fellowship of the Order of the Rose and has the look of a real champion. This epilogue ties everything up and smartly calls back to the beginning of the record because Bob Ezrin is a musical genius and knows how to craft a goddamn concept album. Well done, sir. Now that the track by track is concluded, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a zero to five system, with five being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which is the equivalent of the Elder's sales figures. Fat Bearded Vinyl Guy, what are your final thoughts on music from The Elder? Gene Simmons has famously never been drunk or intentionally gotten high. There was an incident with some brownies once. But he constantly gets drunk off of his own ego and his own bullshit. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we have Exhibit A with The Elder. There are bands that can pull off a good concept album with a cohesive story. Kiss is not one of those bands. Maybe I'm just too young to not go through the whole context of what The Elder was supposed to be story-wise, but this album is more schizophrenic than my imaginary friends. Side 1 kind of works cohesively, but Side 2 is more of a traditional Kiss album, and the only hints of storyline is the title Escape from the Island, where I wonder what's the deal with the island, and the last minute of I that actually reminds you that this was supposed to be a concept album. 
I've read some interviews about this album. One was with Bob Ezrin, where he said he was doing a lot of cocaine at the time, and it shows because he thought this was a good idea. Another was from Gene Simmons, where he, as much as Gene Simmons can give a compliment to Ace Fraley, he did give Ace props for resisting this because they kind of lost their way. They quit being Kiss and started becoming a parody of themselves. Then he went back to being Gene Simmons because he said Ace was wrong for going against the band. Band or no band, a bad idea is still a bad idea. At least Bob Ezrin said maybe Ace had the right idea. That said, I like parts of this album. There are bits that get my blood pumping as well as yawners. If I had more ambition, I could cut out the bits I don't like and have a decent EP, but I'm lazy. I give The Elder a two and a half. With Outside 2, it would be much, much, much lower. Graydon. Yeah, as we've figured out here in this episode, it's definitely an easy album to make fun of. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it has its moments, a few, and it's great to hear Eric Carr. I think he's definitely the highlight of the album if we're looking for positives. Um, Lou mentioned it kind of earlier on, you know, there really would have been a great opportunity to improve so many songs had Ace been fully involved. Or at least like in the past when Ace wasn't playing up to snuff or involved, like for Live 2, the studio albums, the band at least made an effort to bring in like a Bob Kulik and replace Ace. And here they just didn't even bother doing that. So you get some of these lame solos. I guess most of them are played by Paul. And, you know, I'd read that not long after they started this album, they realized what a shit show it was going to be. And they just, they really didn't put their effort into it that they may have intended to when they started and it shows. Um, but again, it's an album I'll put on every once in a while and enjoy it. And it's definitely not my top 10 kiss album, but there are albums they made after that are, I think worse than this. Um, I did make the mistake not too long ago where immediately after playing this album, I put on love gun and I was just thinking, what the fuck happened to this band? going from Love Gun to The Elder. But having said that, you know, I'll give it a solid three. I'll definitely listen to it again in the future. And again, there are a few things to take out of it that that are enjoyable for me. All right, Lou, let's have it. So I was so checked out when this came out. Kiss was like kid stuff. I already moved on to Rush and the new wave of British uh, heavy metal. Metallica was right around the corner, maybe a year or two later. Looking back, I could see why it had failed, and it's no loss that I didn't even look twice in its direction. Um, I give it a two and a half as well. There's nothing here I can defend as a diehard fan. Nothing. The end of 1980 through the beginning of 1981 was a transitional year for KISS. Their label Casablanca Records had been bought out by Polygram and was restructured, while sales of the band's latest album Unmasked were not good, at least in the United States. The members of KISS knew that their older, long-term fans had jumped ship as the fan base grew steadily younger, and so in an effort to bring back the old guard, KISS pledged to record a hard rock album in the vein of the days of yore. They recorded some tracks at Ace Frehley's Connecticut home studio, but the band members were just not feeling it, and they struggled to come up with new material. Enter Bob Ezrin, the producer who modernized Kiss Sound in 1976 for their Destroyer album and was now brought back to give the guys a kick in the pants and jumpstart the writing and recording process. The band relocated to Canada to record on Ezrin's turf, 
And then Bob, Mr. Concept Album Ezrin, got a hold of Gene, Mr. Hollywood Simmons' treatment of a science fiction story he came up with inspired by comic books and Star Wars, and suddenly the Kiss Concept record was on. Ace Fraley said, fuck that shit, and went back to Connecticut, mailing in his parts and solos to the others in Canada and hating the project from the word go. This would be the last Kiss studio album he would play on. Eric Carr was also bewildered at the direction the band was going in on his first Kiss album he would play on and voiced his displeasure. But as for the others, they became enamored with the idea of doing a multimedia project with tie-in movies and a trilogy of albums to tell the full story as soundtracks to the films, you know, like The Who's Tommy or Pink Floyd's The Wall, the album of which Ezrin had produced two years prior. Problem was, Ezrin was a major cokehead in addition to being distracted by other projects he was involved with at the time, so the album quickly became a hot mess recorded in different locations and studios with Ezrin's trademark bells, whistles, and sound effects slathered all over it. Even so, the three principals, Stanley, Simmons, and Ezrin, were convinced that The Elder was a musical and artistic triumph and that the band were going to be taken seriously by the fans and the music press, as if what they had done would be viewed as lofty as The Wall had been. However, after the album was finished and the record company heard it, they were shocked and horrified at how different-sounding and utterly weird the record was. They even forced a resequencing of the album to emphasize tracks that Polygram felt had commercial potential, but also unfortunately rendered the record story to a confusing jumble. When it finally hit record stores, The Elder came in an album cover that depicted a hand reaching for a door knocker and what appeared to be an old brown wooden door, which opened to a gatefold of a table, chairs, and candles that were reminiscent of medieval times. This resulted in not only keeping the old Kiss Army away, but also alienated the newer and younger fans who had no idea what the band was trying to do. And when Kiss finally appeared in magazines and TV promos with shorter haircuts and medieval-influenced costumes... The album had no chance, especially in the musical climate of 1981, and The Elder flopped badly. So badly, in fact, that the band didn't tour to promote it, quickly distanced themselves from it, and basically pretended that it didn't exist for years. Over 40 years later, this still remains the most divisive and lowest-selling album in the KISS catalog, and though the band now does acknowledge its existence, they say things like, The Elder is a good album, just not a good KISS album. And yet, the record does have its share of true fans. A large elder cult, to use a term borrowed from Shout It Out Loudcast, has risen to defend and praise it, and I happen to be one of them. I unapologetically love The Elder. I have since the first time I ever heard it. Is it perfect? Of course not. It's riddled with flaws. And I totally get why people hate it and poke fun at it. We've done it this whole episode. This thing is practically begging for it. And I acknowledge that my fondness for it might have something to do with the difficulty I had in acquiring it and how I had it built up in my mind before I heard it. And then I listened to it, and it delivered on my expectations. I knew it was going to be odd. I knew it was going to be cheesy. I knew it was going to be downright laughable in spots. And it is. But I view this like I view the Godzilla movies I loved as a kid and still love to this day. Silly, stupid, and cringeworthy, yes, but it's also so much escapist fun for me, and I laugh along with it. I can't take this seriously. Plus, there really are a clutch of deceptively good tunes on here if you can cut through the cheese and hear the solid songwriting underneath. Yeah, of course, ultimately it's a misstep. 
Kiss's Greatest Folly, blah, blah. And I'm glad they never made any sequels to The Elder. I'm glad they abandoned the trilogy idea. But I'm also really glad that this does exist. I give music from The Elder a strong four. And hey, if you say it sucks, well, that's your prerogative. Says here it doesn't suck. So suck it. Now we'd like to thank the fat-bearded vinyl guy, Matt Carwick, for coming back and taking a steaming dump on the elder. Way to go, kiss guy. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, it's always great to talk music with you guys. <laughs> it's always fun. Go ahead and plug your stuff, man. Well, fatbeardedvinylguy.com is my website. You will find links to my YouTube channel and my social media. I'm on Facebook at fatbeardedvinylguy. I'm occasionally on Instagram. I'm currently spitballing ideas, putting off some other ideas, and just generally being lazy. So eventually I'll get something up in the near future. All right. And we'd also like to thank Patreon legend Graydon Laycook for coming back and facing the elder with us. Good times, man. Oh, this was the best. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I've been looking forward to it since we first talked about doing it. Knew it was going to be a great, great one to, to go over. Um, and I just, yeah, thank you guys for having me on. You Absolutely. Know. I hope this episode really didn't disappoint. It. Not at all. <laughs> and that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. And I'm Lou. See ya. I'm just a boy. Wow, I almost hit the note. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm the like the late bloomer here. You know? Indiana oh, wow. Jones in the Lost Kiss album. <laughs> It'll melt your face when you listen to it. <laughs> I was hoping one of us was gonna do the the just a boy. <laughs> <laughs> Let me comfort you, boy. Come here. Come here, let me comfort you. Come to Morbius. Come to Morbius. Come to Morbius. Take the red pill. Boy. Boy.